Would you bow in prayer with me? Father, again, we are thankful to be here tonight to open your word together. We're grateful for all that we are learning concerning you and your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We would ask, Lord, that that tonight be a blessing not only to our own hearts, but information that we can know, that we might share, and will solidify the very belief that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for history. We thank you for what it teaches us and how you have so continually confirmed the very testimony that you gave us in your son, Jesus Christ, for your own glory and for our good. And so we thank you for that. We ask your blessing on our time in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's good to be here tonight and to uh, open our Bibles again together. I'll just ask you to open them to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, and I want to uh, introduce us to our topic that we'll be dealing with over the next several times that we are together. It's the issue of the trial of Jesus Christ. And we remember from our time before that, before when Jesus Christ was with his disciples, and just before this time he is confronted Prior to his arrest, here he is in the garden with his disciples. And he had 11 disciples with him there in the garden of Gethsemane. And the betrayer has arrived and he has come with a considerable group of people, a large band of people, somewhere upwards of a thousand probably or more because of the Roman cohort. There's the leaders of the Jewish religious uh, sect is there. Roman soldiers are there, and they're there to take him into custody. And in John's gospel, in verses 12 to 18, we're introduced to this, to the beginnings, really, of the greatest epic perversion of justice that the world has ever seen. And as we begin our time tonight, I I just want us to know that this is going to be more like a history lesson for us, so get get your legal minds on. Get your argumentative minds on as far as the legal side goes. It's going to be more history than it will be expositional, simply because I want us to have an understanding of the Jewish and Roman systems of law under which Jesus is going to be tried as we walk forward in John 18 and further passages. And so over the next several times in our study, we're going to be watching as really onlookers at the trial of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you in particular, as you think about courtroom trials, but I, from time to time, have been fascinated with what takes place in courtroom trials. I was saying to Randy earlier as I was coming out of the office, maybe I should have been a lawyer in my other life, because he said, yeah, you would have made a good one. I said, why? Because I like to argue. (laughs) Anyway, there's something fascinating about trials. Several years ago, I had the opportunity, or the um, uh, maybe not the opportunity some would look for, to be part of a jury pool in which I was selected for a jury trial. And uh, lo and behold, in the jury room, people were saying all of their things about the trial, and I came, I, I was just sitting there quiet. I wanted to be really a fly on the wall and not really say anything and get this over with because, you know, as you know, you go to a, on a jury and they pay you that astronomical amount of money that they give you to be a civil duty. And I just said at the end of it, I said, listen, the bottom line is this. And somebody says, I want him to be my, to be the foreman. 
And I sat there with a stunned face thinking, what just happened? And all the people said, yeah, me too, me too, me too. In 10 seconds, I was a foreman of this jury trial. And of course, it was a hung jury because people don't follow the law. But there's always been something fascinating to me about trials. And when it's a trial of great significance, it always seems to have some kind of way by which it sets precedent in our legal system and oftentimes really determines the course of history. And we've seen this even in our own country. There have been trials and certain court cases that have been followed very closely by all of us, even in recent times. There have been cases that have changed over the history of our country that have changed the voting privileges of people. Even you ladies here tonight are being able to vote because of certain court cases that took place in our own history. Cases that have changed what is taught in the classroom, in schools, such as evolution. Uh, Cases that have sadly legalized the murder of the innocent. There have been cases that have been watched and followed over time. Cases where we all have watched seemingly even guilty people get up out of their chair and walk out of the courtroom as free men and women. And of course, not just in our own country, but also in the world, there have been legal cases and trials whereby rulers of those countries have been removed and even war criminals have been held accountable. And while we seem to watch those trials with great anticipation of what is going to happen and the outcomes of them. No trial has been more charged with emotion, nor is there a greater trial in history that conjures up more emotion between people than the trial of Jesus Christ by the Jewish and Roman courts of the day in which he walked on the earth. One of the finest works ever written on the trial of Jesus Christ from a perspective that isn't in Scripture was written over a century ago by a lawyer who was part of the New York Bar Association uh, whose name was Walter Chandler. Walter Chandler. And if you'll do me the favor and not get on your phones and search that name right now, I'll let you know that you can get his books for free. Okay, but please don't get on your phones or any of your electronic devices right now to do, show that. Okay? Chandler wrote a two-volume set on the trial of Jesus Christ entitled this, The Trial of Jesus from a Lawyer's Standpoint. The Trial of Jesus from a Lawyer's Standpoint. I've been reading that set of books, and it's fascinating to see the realities of what took place during the trial of Jesus Christ. As looked at from in the scriptures, he's a Christian guy lived over lived back in the nineteen early nineteen hundreds, and and was a Christian looking at the trial of Jesus Christ from his legal mindset. It's fascinating to read about. He says in the book about trials, he says this: other trials, one and all, are tame and commonplace compared with the trial and crucifixion of the Galilean peasant Jesus of Nazareth. The others were earthly trials, before earthly courts, on earthly issues. The trial of the Nazarene was before high tribunals of both heaven and earth, before the great Sanhedrin, whose judges were the master spirits of a divinely commissioned race, 
before the court of the Roman Empire that controlled the legal and political rights of men throughout the known world, unquote. That's a heady quote from a lawyer's perspective as to the history behind and the history with the trial of Jesus Christ. So there was never a more important trial than the trial of Jesus Christ. And like we do with all trials, we ask in our minds, at least if you're like me, you do, you ask, was it a fair trial? Was it a fair trial? Well, the trial of Jesus Christ was actually two trials. Some would even say three trials because it seems as if on the Jewish side there were two different trials that Jesus had to stand before. But it was actually two trials. There was the Jewish trial and there was then the Roman trial. And they were very uh, distinct events that happened overall. The, the trials themselves were very distinct events that happened. First, uh, and even John records some of this, first you had the arrest of Jesus Christ. And we see that here in verses 12 through 18 that I, that I want to just read for us really quickly and then we'll move on. It says, So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus, bound him, led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year now Caiaphas was one of one who advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people and of course Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple now that disciple had been known by the high priest and he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest but Peter was standing at the outside door, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. And the slave girl, therefore, who kept the door said to Peter, you're not also one of his, men, his man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire, for it was cool, and they were warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming Himself. So you have this circumstance surrounding the arrest of Jesus Christ. That's what we find happening here in this passage in John's Gospel. It was the evening before the Jewish Passover. Now all these little details we have to keep in our mind. It was the evening before the Jewish Passover. In the year about A.D. 30, A.D. 33, uh, depending on where, where you count the birth of Jesus Christ, probably late on a Wednesday night or very early on Thursday morning, depending on whether it was after midnight or not when they arrested him. Either way, it was, as we said last time, a clandestine operation, a secret kind of uh, operation. How they carried it out secretly with over a thousand people is beyond my imagination, but it was still that carried out by both the temple officers and the Roman cohort, all of which are being led by Judas. So that's the first thing, the arrest of Jesus Christ. Secondly, you had the Jewish trial. And I'm just going to go through some facts about all of these things uh, before we ever dive into the text itself in the next few weeks. But you had the Jewish trial. And according to Chandler in his book, in his book on one volume is on the Jewish trial, the other volume is on the Roman trial. And in his Jewish trial book, he says this, every Jewish trial consists of three different parts. Three different parts. These are very fascinating, very interesting, and I just want to go through them so we understand what Jesus was facing. He said, first you had the preliminary hearing, 
And in the case of Jesus, that occurred by night. Now remember that, right? This is before the Passover, just before, and they're doing this preliminary hearing by night in front of Annas. John's text tells us here in verse 13, that's who they led him to first, to Annas. Now, when you look at the other gospel accounts of this, it says that Annas is the high priest. And here in John's gospel, it says Caiaphas was the high priest that year. We don't have to be confused that it says here that Caiaphas was the high priest, that somehow John must have got it wrong. And the other accounts say that Annas was the high priest. We don't have to be confused about that. Why? Because technically speaking, they were both the high priest. Because according to Jewish law, the high priest held his office for life. In other words, once a high priest, always a high priest by way of title, by way of recognition. And Annas, who is the older of the two, it says here in John's Gospel, he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, so he was married to Annas' daughter. He's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He, Caiaphas, was the high priest on one sense, but Annas was the high priest on the Jewish side. He was the high priest that was recognized by the Jews. When the Jews said the high priest, they were recognizing Annas as the high priest. That's why John says they were led to him first. And so John tells us that the preliminary hearing of Jesus Christ was before Annas. To which, by the way, Jesus refuses to testify against himself uh, and consequently is abused by what I just simply call the bailiff of the court. If you go over to verse 18 or verse uh, 19 and following, it says, The high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I said. And when he said this, one of the officers standing gave Jesus a blow saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? So Jesus is being mistreated already at the preliminary hearing. So the preliminary hearing is the first part in a Jewish trial. Then there was a second phase of the trial that was before Caiaphas. This is why some say he had three trials. He had the preliminary hearing before Annas. Then Annas sends him over to Caiaphas. Uh, In fact, Annas... uh, was the one who sends him over to his son-in-law. And that part of the trial is recorded by the other three gospel writers. John's the only one who tells us here that he stands before Annas. The other three tell us about Caiaphas. And Chandler goes on to say in his book that in this part of the trial, it's when witnesses would be uh, begin to be brought before uh, the, the, the court, if you will, or the, the, the place doing the interrogation. And in the case of Jesus, they were brought forth, as we can read in the gospel accounts, witnesses were brought forth, but those witnesses could never agree on their testimony. So they were apparently dismissed as witnesses. And you'll see when, we, when I go through qualifications for witnesses as to why that would have happened. Because in a normal case under Jewish law, 
if a witness who came to accuse someone was uh, dismissed as someone who really wasn't a witness against him in some kind of legal sense way, that meant that immediately in a Jewish law court that the accused would be immediately acquitted of the charges and the case would be thrown out. So here before Caiaphas, they're bringing witnesses and those witnesses cannot agree on what the actual testimony is about Jesus and what they're saying. And if that was following the law, then the case against Jesus would have immediately been thrown out and he would have been acquitted and let go right there. So you can see already there's something awry in what's happening. That Jesus isn't immediately acquitted. Because in the case of him, not only are the witnesses dispatched, but Caiaphas himself as the high priest interjects himself, and by way of Jewish law, he interjects himself illegally by demanding that Jesus say whether he is the Son of God or not. And I want to show you that, just turning back to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 57. Jesus, of course, is seized and led away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. And all of those titles are very important. You have the priests there, you have the scribes there, you have the elders there. And, and keep all these things in your mind because you'll, you'll hopefully begin to tie these ends together as we go along. And Peter, of course, was following at a distance. It gives us all that. Verse 49, or 59, now the chief priests and the whole council. Now he's before the whole council. When it says the whole council there, it's the Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin, the whole council gathered together. And in a little bit, I'll I'll tell you about that and what made up that. But he's before the whole council and they keep trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. Why? In order that they might put him to death. So there's this preconceived notion of guilt. They're just looking for something to pin upon him and they don't find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up. Now this is Caiaphas. He stands up and he says, Do you make no answer? What is this that these men are testifying against you? In other words, incriminate yourself. Now in a Jewish law court, the judge was never to do that. That was not their place. They were never to be on the side of the accusing. They were always to be on the side of the defending. And here Caiaphas is accusing Jesus Christ. But Jesus keeps silent. And the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so Jesus went from what should have been an initial acquittal because of false testimony brought before the court, he went from an acquittal to an immediate conviction by unanimous vote. And all of this happened at night. So he went from what should have been an acquittal, I keep these in your mind, what should have been an acquittal to immediate conviction, a conviction by unanimous vote, And it all happened at night. Well, there's a third phase to the trial. It was in the morning. 
Here's how Luke records it for us in Luke 22, verse 66 to 71. He said, When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests, scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, this is unanimous, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. And they said unanimously, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. A unanimous vote of condemnation. This third phase included the whole Sanhedrin. I mentioned that just a minute ago. The Sanhedrin was the highest court in Judaism. The highest court of the land. It was as if Jesus was standing before the Supreme Court of the United States. I mean, it's the highest court of the land. This, there is no court higher than the, San, the great Sanhedrin. And all of them vote Jesus to be guilty. It's an important note. It's a very important note to, to, to mark that down. He's been arrested. He's come before the court. And then there's the Roman trial. Now for the Jews, the Roman trial was simply a necessity. Because under the Roman law, the Jewish court could convict someone. But the Jewish court could not execute anybody. They had no authority for execution. And so they needed the conviction in the Roman court in order to carry out their their desire. And like a Jewish trial, the Roman trial had three parts. First, there was the appearance before Pilate. We see that in John chapter 18, verse 28 to 38, Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23. All of those passages are the parallel passages together. And for Jesus to be not just convicted, for him to be sentenced, and that sentence to be handed down and then carried out, the Roman court had to be in agreement with the first conviction under the Jewish law. But that doesn't seem to be happening. If you read through those texts, if you read through the places where it is recorded for us in all of the Gospels, Pilate's very reluctant to convict Jesus of anything. Instead of a simple, yeah, this guy's guilty, let's move on, go ahead and do what you want to do, immediately carry out your sentence. Instead of that, Pilate actually tries to set Jesus free. Pilate actually tries to to ensure that Jesus isn't convicted. And so like in a Jewish trial, Jesus is sent to another ruler for questioning. The second part of the Roman trial. He's sent to Herod because Jesus was from Galilee, of which Herod was over, and Pilate was just the governor, and he's trying to escape all responsibility to have anything to do with Jesus, because Pilate's just trying to save his own political neck and his own position. But what does Herod do? Herod sends Jesus back. And the third part of the Roman trial begins when that happens, which is the one which Jesus, under which one that Jesus is finally sentenced, of course, even though he hadn't actually been convicted of anything in the Roman court. 
In fact, he had been pronounced innocent by Pilate. I find no guilt in this man, he says. And so then the final reality, of course, in any court case is the carrying out of the sentence. And so in the case, Jesus Christ is crucified. Now that's just a, a basic, overall, quick look at the basics of what took place during the arrest, trial, and sentencing of Jesus Christ. But all of those parts become actually even more stunning, more shocking, more jaw-dropping for us when you know something about Jewish law. And that's where Chandler's books are very helpful. Especially since it's from a lawyer's point of view. Especially since he's given the actual legal thought. I mean, he's not a dummy. This is a guy who knows the law, who researched the law, who looked into the Jewish law. And if you know anything about Jewish law, then you also know that it can be very complicated. It is a complicated set of rules because it is both a written law and it is an oral law. It's written and oral and part, the part of it that, that we're interested in really is the part about capital cases. There's all kinds of other stuff about different kinds of cases in Jewish law. But we really want to know about capital cases. Cases in which someone could be killed for the offense. Crimes that are punishable by death. That's the idea that we're looking at. We're focusing in on. And what must happen for that person to be convicted of such a crime? For a capital offense trial, there were four necessary elements, and some of those elements had several parts, and I just want to go through those tonight. I said this was going to be a history lesson, and for us to get our legal minds on, that's why. So there were four parts. First and foremost was that in order for a capital trial to happen, the only court authorized for which a capital trial could happen was the great Sanhedrin. They're the only ones who could try a capital trial. It would be like every capital case in our country that the Supreme Court of the United States was the only court that could hear those cases. That's what it was in Jewish life. The only court who could handle any capital case was the great Sanhedrin. And the great Sanhedrin was made up of 71 members. It wasn't nine it was 71 members, and it only convened in Jerusalem. Now, the Sanhedrin was made up of three different parts. There were 23 priests on the Sanhedrin. There were 23 scribes on the Sanhedrin. And there were 23 elders on the Sanhedrin. You say, well, that's only 69. True. And to that, they added two more court officers to the the great Sanhedrin, that would make up the 71. And so those three groups, the priests, the scribes, and the elders, covered every aspect of Jewish life. The religious life was covered by the priests. The legal ideas of, 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 of the law, the Old Testament law of Moses and all that, were the scribes. And the democratic and social side of life was the elders who ruled over the people. So you had all the, the aspects of Jewish life covered when it came to the group of the Sanhedrin joining together and sitting on a capital case. Now since the Sanhedrin, since it was exclusively the ones who could sit on capital cases, there was some very strict qualifications for who could be on the Sanhedrin. 
Okay, there's only 23 priests, 23 scribes, 23 elders, and those other two men who were qualified as court officers. But there were some very strict qualifications to be as part of that group. Here's what it says in the Jewish law. You had to be, first of all, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Remember when Paul said that, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews? That just simply means both of your parents are purebred Hebrew people. There's no inbreeding that went on. There's no half-blood Jew that, that somehow you got in your family line. So both of your parents are from Jewish origin. You have Jewish parents. Your bloodline is pure. So that was the first requirement to be on the Saturday. You had to be a Hebrew of the Hebrews. The second thing was you needed to be equipped in the law, but with prior legal experience. In other words, you were not a legal novice. You weren't just some guy who graduated law school and somehow you made the other qualifications, so therefore you could be on the Sanhedrin. No, 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 no. You had to have a lot of legal experience. No legal novice could sit. It's, it's similar to what we do when someone's going to be on the Supreme Court. They go through, they've been a lawyer for a long time, sitting on the judge for a long time, appointed, elected, all these other kind of things that you go through before that ever comes about. Third thing is you had to be multilingual. You had to be conversant in several languages. And you say, why is that? Why would, why would a judge, a judge of 71 judges, and all of them have to be multilingual in the court? Because oftentimes there would be people who would be presented before your court who didn't speak Hebrew. Oftentimes the Jews had been dispersed to other countries and they would have to come back, spend time before the court if they were accused of something. And so you, as a judge, might have to interpret language for that person in speaking their language. Why? Because no interpreters were allowed in the court. There were no other interpreters allowed to be in the courtroom. Only the judges, the accused, and the, the witnesses of the accused. That's all that were allowed in the courtroom. So you had to be a multilingual person. And then it said you had to be humble, of good reputation... So those things about your outward carrying of yourself. But most importantly, most importantly, you needed to not have a personal interest in the case or the outcome of the case in which you were adjudicating. So even in Jewish law, they had the, the idea of recusal. If you were related to somebody on the case, if somewhere in the, the history of your line you were related to somebody in the case, then you couldn't sit on that case. I mean, in the Jewish community, that seems like that alone would have caused most cases to just be thrown out, especially if you were a Hebrew of Hebrews, because those families were very tight. So that was the makeup of the court. That was the qualifications in needing to be able to even sit on a capital case. So these weren't just run-of-the-mill guys who were, who were there trying Jesus Christ. These weren't just guys they conjured up and, hey, guys who, who were part of some Jewish family, and they said, hey, we want you to, to be part of this. No, this makeup was guys who were sophisticated, educated, well-bred men. And they were stringent qualifications. So you couldn't just sit on a court. But then there was the stringent qualifications for witnesses, for witnesses. This is fascinating. You know, when you watch a court case in our legal system, a witness is an important element, right? 
a very important element in a court case because what happens in our court system is someone will come to the thing, a stand as a witness, called as a witness, and they will be asked all kinds of questions as to what they know about the case, what they know about whatever situation it is, right? They testify about what they know, and a good lawyer collects some information from one witness, some information from another witness, some information from another witness, and all these multiple witnesses that have differing parts, and, and the lawyer puts all of that compelling information together as a picture as a whole as a defense or a prosecution depending on which side the lawyer is on and he takes that and he tries to build the picture of accusation or of defense of the one who's on trial but that's not how it works under Hebrew law the witness had to have all of the information To be an actual witness in a court case, he had to have all of the information, which is why I said these one witnesses who who they gather together false witnesses in order to gain information about Jesus and the false witnesses couldn't collaborate their information, they they were thrown out. That requires acquittal of the person. And if a witness in the Hebrew system under Jewish law had to have all the information, in other words, they had to have everything pertaining to the crime that was being brought forth everything. They had to know it all. In fact, one author that Chandler quotes put it this way, quote, even where there appeared a legal number of duly qualified witnesses, the testimony was insufficient to convict unless they agreed not only with regard to the prisoner's offense, but also with regard to the mode of committing the crime. In other words, rabbinic law does not subject a person to capital nor even to corporal punishment unless all witnesses charge the person with one and the same criminal act. And what he means by that is not only charge him with it, but know every detail of it. In other words, all the witnesses' statements had to be fully in agreement as to the circumstances And to the way they saw, get this, to the way they saw the person do the crime. If one witness said the crime was on a Tuesday night and all the other details they gave, and then somebody else comes and he gives all the details, and all the details are the same, but he says, and it occurred on a Wednesday night, immediately acquittal. Why? Because one said Tuesday, one said Wednesday. Thrown out. Just on that small detail. No crime. So that was just the first qualification for a witness. The second qualification for a witness in a capital case was that there needed to be two or more witnesses in order to gain a conviction. So the first qualification is you've got to know everything. And in a capital case, you have to have two or more of those who know everything. So not only did they have to have full agreement on each aspect of what took place, but there needed to be more than one person with that same information. And if any of it, if in any of the information there was a discrepancy within the witnesses, the prisoner was immediately acquitted and released. And so in a properly handled Jewish case, the witnesses would have been thoroughly vetted before they were ever allowed to speak. And they were typically asked seven preliminary questions before they were ever allowed to give any kind of other kind of information, they were asked, did, did the supposed crime happen in a jubilee year? 
Jubilee year was the seventh year. It was a year where forgiveness was, was offered to, to everybody. If you had a debt, your debt was forgiven in the seventh year. So did it happen in a Jubilee year? Okay, if not, was it in a normal year? <laughs> there were feasts and, and all kinds of other uh, Jewish rituals and rites and ceremonies that went on during different kinds of year. Was it in a normal year? If so, what month was it in? Because certain months had certain things. And if it was in a certain month, okay, then what day of the month was it on? And if it was on a day, then what hour did it occur? In what place did it occur? And last, do you identify the person as the one who did it? So those were just the first seven preliminary questions. To vet out a witness as to whether their witness was actually valid or not. And so to be a witness meant... That it was taken very seriously. Not just taken seriously by the court, but taken seriously by the person. Why? Because if there was a discrepancy in any part of the testimony, any part at all, if you brought the accusation against a person and there was a discrepancy in any part of the testimony, the prisoner would go free. And if you were found to be a false witness, then you were going to be punished for the crime you were going to face capital punishment. So it was a very, very serious thing just to be a witness. The third vetting of witnesses was that the witness was the accuser. You know, you know in our society, in our Jewish prudence system, the state can, be, can bring charges against somebody. If the state, you know, on a domestic violence issue, when the state comes, they have to arrest somebody. It's the state bringing charges against the person. If the other person doesn't want to file charges, the state still files charges. But in a Jewish system, that's not how it works. The accuser is, the witness is the accuser. So unlike our courts, you have, where you have a prosecutor in a case... In a Jewish capital offense, the witness is the prosecutor. They're, they're, they're the ones who arrange the arrest. They're the ones who bring accusation before the court against the person that they've arranged. So even under this system, Judas would have been the one who would have had to stand before the court in, a capital, in that capital case as the accuser of Jesus Christ. Because he was the one who brought about the arrest. And so finally, and most importantly, to be a witness, you had to first, get this, this is a fascinating thing. You had to first be the person who warned the person who's being accused of the crime not to do the crime that they're doing. To be a, a, a genuine witness in a Jewish capital case trial, you had to be a person who actually warned the person who, did, who supposedly did the crime not to do the crime that they're accused of doing, that you're the one accusing them of. It was called an antecedent warning. An antecedent warning. So the entire system and the requirement for judges and witnesses was actually set up in capital cases to prevent anyone from being actually accused and punished of a capital offense. That's how it was set up. The judges were there to be the defense attorneys for the accused. They were there to find some kind of way in the law in which that person could be acquitted. 
The witnesses were fully vetted in order to have to have every detail without fail, always equal, always together, no discrepancies at all. And they were having to have to warn the person before they ever did the crime. So you would have had to say to the person, listen, I just want to say to you before you ever do that, this is what's going to happen to you if you do that. And the person would have to say to you, yeah, I know, the, I know the ramification of the law. I don't care what you say. I'm doing it anyway. For you to be an actual witness that was valid in a capital case. Don't kill that guy. If you kill that guy, you're going to find yourself in court under capital offense. Yeah, I know that's what it says. Thanks for warning me. I'm doing it anyway. And then you would have had to be the one going to have him arrested, taken to court, being the witness to go and accuse him of that offense. So... There was the court, the Sanhedrin, and all their qualifications. There were witnesses and all their qualifications. And then you had the trial itself. How it was to be conducted under the law. How was the trial to be conducted? Well, first, it was to be during daytime. When did they try Jesus Christ in the first thing? It was at night. John doesn't write that simply as a, hey, by the way, here's a nice, nice little geographical note to you. That's there to show us exactly the heinousness of this act. Because the law said, the actual Jewish law said it was to be during the daytime, which symbolized to them in their law that everything was to be done in the sight of God. In other words, it was to be out in the open, clear, and conducted so that everyone would see. No secrecy at all. The second thing is the judges were never to seek to condemn, but rather they were to work to find a way whereby that person could be acquitted. They were never to seek to condemn the accused. And yet, what do we find in Jesus' trial? Caiaphas stands up and tries to get Jesus to condemn himself. Third, In the Jewish trial, the accused could be convicted only by a vote of two more than a simple majority. Two more than a simple majority. Now, there's 71 on the court. You needed at least 35, which is majority plus two. 37. So get this. If you had 35 that said acquit and 36 that said convict, he was acquitted. Because you need two more than the majority to convict. Jesus Christ was convicted by how many? A unanimous vote. Unanimous. You'll find that interesting in a minute. Because the fourth thing about a Jewish trial was that a unanimous vote for conviction was automatically thrown out. Because it was assumed that that was an emotional decision. In other words, a decision made on the the venue of mob rule. Just out of emotion. And so if it was sheer unanimous, immediately tossed out, go free. And fifth, if the accused was in some way to be found guilty, then the sentence of their guilt could never be rendered on the day of the trial. Why? Because they wanted to give the judges a night to think about their decision. 
Because in Jewish law, to take a life was a serious thing. Because they saw everyone as being made in the image of God. Passed down from God. And to take a life was a serious, serious thing. Henceforth, the reason why they, they, they spent their time trying to find some way to acquit. So if there, if there was a vote by way in which they had a majority plus two, then they would leave the sentence until the next day. And on the second day, a more than simple majority vote still had to take place in the case. In other words, they would come back, readjourn, come back, take a vote again to see if there was a, a majority. If it was a simple majority on the second day, acquittal. The person, if there was more than a majority, is still convicted. But even that, Chandler says this, quote, The humane and indulgent spirit of Hebrew law continued to operate and deferred immediate sentence. The judges continued to deliberate. No one thought of quitting the judgment, quitting the judgment hall on the second day of the trial. No one ate. No one drank. All the merciful tendencies of the lawful interpretation were invoked by the judges as the defenders of the accused. And even as the person was being transported to penalty... In other words, if death was the thing and there was only four ways they could kill you, they could cut your head off, they could uh, stone you, they could strangle you, or they could burn you. That was the only four ways that capital punishment was to be carried out. So if you were beheaded, you were tied to a pole, and the guy would come and lop your head off with a sword. And the body was immediately taken out outside the city. There was always a a burial place where they would immediately intern the body. And under the Jewish law, once the body decomposed enough to where the bones were available, they would give the bones to the family to bury in their own home plot. If you were to be strangled, they would bury you up to your shoulders in in dirt and mud. And two guys would wrap a, a, a cloth around your neck and pull from each side until you were no longer breathing. If you were stoned to death, it wasn't like normally we think in our minds, somebody dug a hole, they put you in there and everybody starts pitching little rocks on you. No, they would typically throw you off a larger place into a a farther deep so you probably broke your neck on the way down and then they'd heap stones upon you. And if you were burned, they'd bury you up to your shoulders again. They would strangle you to death first and then take the cloth off, light on fire, stick it in your mouth and you would burn. So it wasn't a great thing to happen. But the judges were always defenders, and even if the person was being transported to their penalty, even then efforts were taking place to try and find something that could be considered for an acquittal. In fact, I was reading, there was someone standing outside the court with a flag, and as the the person was walking or being marched to wherever they were going to be executed, there was a flag there, and even the prisoner could could make defense of himself as he was walking. And if anything, anything might have come up to whereby it would have needed to be answered, the the person helping the soldier marching them out would have stopped it, looked back, the guy would have raised the flag, they would have marched the prisoner back in in order to have the trial once again heard again so that they might do that. And he was yelling the whole time, anybody who has any information that might change things, please let us know, that kind of idea, the whole way. So that anybody could have come up and it would have stopped immediately the, the march to the execution. He would have went back and the whole thing would have went over again. Why? Because they didn't want to take a life. 
So with all of that happening in a capital case within Jewish law, in the highest of Jewish courts, you can know this wasn't some backwoods, anti-intellectual, primitive, unlearned court, as you might read in some commentaries. It wasn't that at all. Jesus was condemned to die by the most, get this, by the most merciful judicial system ever created. So why, did he, why was he condemned? Why? That's the question we ask. Why was Jesus then condemned? There's only one real simple answer. It's summed up for us in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. We know it well. Jeremiah 17, 9. Right? The heart is more deceitful than anything else who can know it. That's why Jesus was condemned. Christ was condemned not because he was tried by some flawed system. He wasn't condemned because those who tried him didn't know the law. He wasn't condemned because the witnesses or the judges weren't qualified. No, the reason that Christ was condemned, even though he was innocent at every level, because there was nothing more wicked than the heart of man. That's the point. There's nothing more wicked than the heart of man, and God used that to accomplish his predetermined plan. It's the wicked heart that will do anything to accommodate itself. Even it will circumvent what it has developed to release innocent people in order that it might condemn them. It will circumvent even that. The wicked heart will use that which is for good to bring about the evil it intends. And that's what we see happening here at the start of Jesus' trial. Wicked men rejecting even their own rules so that their own wickedness would be appeased. That's what's happening. And when you think about it, there's really a glorious irony in it all. It's really a glorious irony. Because God used the wickedness of men to bring about the only way in which the wickedness of men could be cured. They sentenced and killed the Son of Glory. And it's through faith in the Son of Glory that the wicked heart is turned from its wickedness. God's ways are not our ways. Right? It's only through Jesus Christ that the cure is found. The innocent one condemned for those who should be condemned. He died so that we who are dead might live. We use this language oftentimes when we are sharing our testimonies or whatever. We say, we gave our life to Christ, right? We say that oftentimes. Well, we didn't give God anything. God took us as his own because we were dead. John says, I wrote this that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing we might have life in his name. 
There's an interesting passage or part of the Mishnah. That's what the law is called, the Mishnah. It's made up of the Talmud and the Gemara. The Talmud is the written side. The Gemara is the oral side. Thousands and thousands of pages. But in the Mishnah, there's, there's a, a thing written down that shows the contrast between a capital trial, what makes a capital trial, and what involves trials that aren't capital trials. They call it a money-only trial or a civil suit. And it said this, money trials and life and trials for life have the same rule of inquiry and investigation, but they differ in procedure in the following points. And I'll end with this. The former, that is the money trials, only require three. In other words, three judges. Three judges. The latter require three and twenty judges or twenty-three judges. So when they did the vote, and what he means by that, when they did the vote, they would set 23 of the judges in front. And it was always the younger first. They would set them. And if there was an an equal amount of votes, they'd add two more to that. And if it went on like that until they reached a full vote of of 71, if they needed that. If they got a, a full majority of two before that, then the trial was acquitted. Normally it was an acquittal. So he's saying in those latter trials, you only need three. In a capital trial, you need 23. Far bigger requirement. In the money trials, it matters not on which side the judges speak who gives the first opinions. In other words, in those trials, a judge could speak whether it was on the acquittal side or it was on the conviction side, like when they voted. When they voted, they not only could say, yeah, I convict, but they had to give a reason as to why they were convicting, a legal reason. Well, in, in smaller cases, it didn't matter on which side they were voting, they could speak. But in a, convic- in a capital trial, those who could speak were only those who were in favor of acquittal. They could speak first. If you were in favor of conviction, you had to wait. You had to wait till the end. In a money trial, the majority of one is always enough. But in a capital trial, the majority of one is enough to acquit. Right? 36 still was enough to acquit. But it required a majority of two to condemn. In a money trial, the decision could be squashed on review for error, no matter which way it went. In other words, in a money trial, if it was acquittal or if it was guilty, uh, under review, it could be changed either way because of some kind of error. But in a capital offense trial, a condemnation could be squashed, but an acquittal could never be squashed. Only a condemnation. In a money trial, disciples of the law present present in the court could speak. On the other side, in a criminal trial or in a capital trial, they could speak in favor of the accused, but not against the accused. In a money trial, a judge who has indicated his opinion, no matter which side, can change his mind. But in a capital trial, he who was given a voice for acquittal can't change it. So if you vote for acquittal, that's it. It's done. Can't be changed. Even after a night's wait, you couldn't change it and come back. Well, you know, after thinking about it, I think he's guilty now. Sorry. In money trials, they're commenced only in the daytime, but they can be concluded at nightfall. But capital trials are commenced only in the daytime and must also be concluded during the day. Yet here's Jesus Christ going before Annas at night. 
And in a money trial, it can be concluded by acquittal or condemnation on the day on which it had begun. But a capital trial can only be concluded on the day after the sentence, after the uh, the conviction or acquittal is made, it had to be post or it, no, it could be ended if acquittal was made on the first day, but if there was a conviction, it had to wait till the second day to be finally finished so that they could see if they rethought what they were doing. And so for that reason, capital trials were not held on the day before the Sabbath or a feast day ever. So you can just see through the irony of the law and the irony of what God has shown us in, in the scriptures as to Jesus Christ, why in the world was Jesus Christ ever convicted? And the only reason he was convicted is because sinful hearts forwent the law and convicted him anyway, all by God's design, so that the innocent would save those who were guilty. Well, that's where we're going. We'll see more next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for men who have minds to think through these things, to challenge our own thinking, to study history, to let us know the truth. Thank you for giving us understanding in this area, for helping us see the bigger picture, if you will, of what's going on in the Gospels so that we might have a full understanding in our heart as to all that Jesus Christ went through so that he might save us. All the love of God which surpasses understanding. It's amazing that you would have done that for us. So we thank you for that tonight. We ask your blessing upon each one who's here, even those who aren't here, who wanted to be here. Lord, we think of Ivy and and others who are sick in our midst. Lord, we pray that you would be with them, grant them grace and healing, and take us home safely so that we might honor you this week for your glory in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.